Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Theotech Podcast. I'm Chris Lim, your host, and today I'm very excited to introduce to you Melissa Birchfield. She's a junior at the University of Washington in computer science, and she's written a book called Data for Dignity, which is about how big data is being used to stop human trafficking. So with that, let's go ahead and dive in to this episode of the Theotech Podcast. So, Melissa, I got in touch with you because we presented as Theotech at Missions Fest, a local conference, and I think that your pastor, Joe Lum, came to our booth, and when he saw part of what we did, activating people in technology to use their gifts for the gospel, he said, oh, I know somebody you have to talk to. And that's how he connected me with you. And when I read the introduction to your book and a little bit of your journey, I was like, yeah, this is a great story that I really want to share, especially because you're still in college. You're, you're not even out of college yet, and you're already doing this work, integrating your faith in your work. Um, so I'm really excited to have you on the show. Can you begin by sharing with us uh, your journey, how you ended up discovering this intersection of technology and how it's used um, to fight human trafficking? Sure. So my journey really began when I started college. Um, I started directly into the computer science major, but I had no idea what I wanted to do in the field. And for me, technology was more of a logical career option and not really something that I was passionate about and so I was searching for some other cause or um, really area specific area of computer science that ignited that passion that I could chase after and that really started in spring of my freshman year so I'm also in the honors program and I took an honors course that was all about understanding um, human trafficking and what it was how to combat it um, clearing up the, myth, the myths and misconceptions around the issue. And that was, um, it's an issue that no one had really discussed with me before. Mm. And I knew that it was really bad, but I didn't really know anything else about it. And so that course really changed the way that I understood the world and just the, the depth of the injustice that goes on um, and the ways that human beings are sitting against each other just mm. really broke my heart. And I really wanted to do something to help. Um, and I especially wanted to see if there was a way that as a computer scientist I could use those technical skills to contribute to the fight against human trafficking. And so I talked to my professor, she connected me with a grad student in CS who's doing um, work in that space and from there just kind of started exploring um, what people are doing in that intersection and learning that there's some really exciting projects that are happening but also there's so much potential because not that many people are even aware of um, mm -hmm. the need for technologists to be involved in that space. It's a lot of a lot of social workers, a lot of government agencies and nonprofits and things like that, but not a lot of, um, you know, the cutting edge technology, it really has the potential to be applied there. So that's how I became interested in the space. So you said this class really uh, opened your eyes to the problem of human trafficking. Can you describe in some of those ways that it opened your mind? Like before that, what was your thought about it and how did coming out of that class change you, change your perspective? Yeah, so before I took the class, I had this nebulous idea of this conspiratorial network of um, people who were buying and selling other people, kind of in a like underground network or trade. And I thought it was very organized mm -hmm. and very systematic. And it turns out, yes, there are those kind of um, like trafficking rings and things like that, but it's also... Um, it also can be very individualized, like a couple in the U.S. can invite 
you know, their niece or nephew from Central America to come and live with them and tell them that they'll, you know, provide them housing and enable them to go to school, but then actually um, put them to work to pay off their like travel debts and then never actually letting them pay off that debt. Um, so things like that, it just, there are so many different forms of human trafficking, um, both labor and, and sex trafficking. And the class helped me complexify my understanding of the issue and seeing both internationally and like in my own city, what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And your city is and Seattle? Seattle, yes. Okay. Um, so in Seattle, the uh, sex trafficking is a huge issue, especially mm. along the I-5 corridor. Mm. Um, and then also with Seattle being a port city, there's um, some labor trafficking that goes on there. So. As part of the course, I did some volunteer work with an organization called Seattle Against Slavery, and they're also doing some really exciting work with technology and working with tech volunteers to integrate those kind of platforms into mm -hmm. their work. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was like four years ago that we organized Code for the Kingdom mm -hmm. Seattle. Uh, it was a hackathon, and we had Seattle Against Slavery show up, actually, and oh, they really? presented. And during that hackathon, what was really cool was they had this data set of because um, they already had some ad campaigns, I think, running and their website. And they had this data set, but they didn't know how to analyze it. So they brought it to Code for the Kingdom and some people who are familiar with data science, they actually did an analysis and they discovered some insights from that data that were interesting, like um, the time of day when people were searching to buy sex online tended to be actually not what you would expect, which many people intuitively think it was like at night or something. But it was actually in the afternoon, like two to four or something like that, where people might be bored, they're at work, they're stressed out, they're trying to figure out what they're gonna do. And that's when they were getting the most traffic to their website, which is meant to be a public service announcement website, urging people not to do it. But that kind of insight was like, for me, really cool because it let them spend their ad dollars in a more effective way um, that they were getting to be able to reach more of the people they're trying to target to try to stop them from contributing to the demand for sex slavery. So I thought that was really cool tie-in when I heard that you worked with Seattle Against Slavery, but I haven't talked to them in many years. So it's really interesting to hear from you, perhaps, what kind of cool tech things are they doing now Postcode for the Kingdom and whatever else, other initiatives that they have. Yeah, so they're still doing the, the targeted ads. Um, so both, and I don't know, I think yours was like on social media, so like Facebook or Instagram, based on the activity of the users, um, if they think that they're more likely to be searching um, to buy sex online, then they'll show them those kind of ads um, to deter that behavior and redirect them to resources to get help to change those habits. Um, and then they're also doing some work with organizations like REST, um, Real Escape for the Sex Trade. They're a victim service provider in Seattle, and they've been working with them to develop this automatic text outreach platform. So basically they'll scrape numbers from, of, from websites, looking at ads for potential victims, and then reaching out via text, saying, hey, if you, you, know, if you want help, you can call this number, here are some resources for you, just opening the door that way so they're able to expand their, their outreach. Wow, so they're working on kind of both ends of the market, quote unquote, mm -hmm. the demand side as well as the supply side. They're trying to reach out to the people doing the supply to help them instead of them having to live this way to make money. And the demand side, they're trying to prevent people from buying it. So that's pretty cool that they're mm -hmm. on both ends and they're partnered, you said, with another organization to do that, REST? Yes. Okay. Yes. Wow. Fantastic. And so I, I'm guessing that all of these stories are shared in your book to some mm -hmm. degree? Mm -hmm. Okay. And did you actually do any technical things with them? Are you a tech volunteer working with these organizations? It's interesting you ask that because um, last fall, that was when I was really like, oh, I really want to be a tech volunteer. I want to 
do tech and anti-trafficking work and I want to get started right away. And so I reached out to Seattle Against Slavery and one or two other organizations as well. And they were really, they really appreciated my passion. They're like, we love that you want to help um, and you want to contribute. But also I didn't quite have the technical experience that would make me an asset <laughs> to, mm -hmm. their, to their cause. And they would have had to do a lot of work to like bring one board and find me something that I could do. Because mm -hmm. um, a lot of their tech volunteers are already, you know, they're in full-time positions. They have a lot of experience. And so they have more to bring to that space. Um, and I, I really wanted to do something um, but I haven't been able to like do any technical work yet. Mm -hmm. And part of that kind of led me into writing this book is I want to educate myself and like learn more about the space um, while at the same time also, you know, learning more computer science and strengthening my technical skills too so that in the future, hopefully I will be able to do some tech volunteer work. That's great. Mm -hmm. Let's let's go ahead and talk about the book then. So what prompted that journey? I see you have, a, she has a card here with me that says this year I want to and she wrote in the blank, publish a book. So that's pretty cool. You actually achieved your goal, it sounds like. Yeah, it's actually, I brought this today because um, this is a social enterprise called Starfish Project that I've been following for a while and they, they're based in Asia and provide job opportunities for women coming out of sex, um, sex trafficking. Mm. So last year, it was about a, exactly a year ago, they had an end of the year sale and I got a necklace from them that I, it has like Mica 6-8 on the necklace and what's the verse you can just quote it so that people on the podcast can know <laughs> um, what it is yeah the words the words on the necklace are um act justly love mercy and walk humbly and that encapsulated the the connection to my faith that i really was behind my whole interest in the anti-trafficking space is i want to live out that verse mm. um and so anyway i got that necklace and in the package they gave me this card it says, this year I want to blank. Mm. And I kept that with me the whole year of knowing what I wanted to write on that blank, but too scared to write it. <laughs> um, and I actually, I just wrote the words last night. Mm. I was like, I actually did it so I, I, can, I can write it and it actually happened. But um, yeah, so last winter break, um, I had finished my first quarter as a sophomore and I was feeling torn in a lot of ways. Like, I had, I really had this heart for anti-trafficking work. I was also starting to enjoy my computer science classes more because I could see how I could potentially use them um, to do work that I was really interested in. And then I also, I've always wanted to write a book. I've always loved writing. And so I felt like God was kind of tugging all of those um, interests mm -hmm. and they seemed so disconnected, but I also felt like he was he was on the brink of crystallizing them in some way that mm. I had no idea how it was going to happen. But I, I was, for the first time in several months, I was actually excited for the future. I'm like, I know God is going to do something big and I have no idea what it is and I'm kind of scared for it, but I am ready to try something new mm. and to chase after it. So starting winter quarter in January, I got a message on LinkedIn from someone who told me about this program that's designed to guide college students through the process of writing and publishing a book. And I was, I was like, okay. I had heard about this program before, but I hadn't really learned more about it because it seemed too good to be true. Like, can huh. you really write a book in a year? Wow. Um, I had always thought I had to be qualified and like actually know what I was talking about before I put it in, into a book. But um, the professor who started this program, his philosophy is you learn through the process. Wow. And 
you use the book as a way to open doors to conversations and networking with people and learning more about this, the field that you want to be in. Um, and so that was really new for me. And I, f I really felt like this was God's answer to my, my prayer for like a purpose. Uh -huh. and, and that's what his assignment was for me this year um, was to, to work on this book. And so... So real quick, what was the name yeah. of that program at UW? It's called... It, it, it was started at Georgetown University. Or Georgetown. Yeah, it's called the Creator Institute. The Creator Institute, okay. And then mm -hmm. it's open for the public or students only? Or? It's mostly designed for college students, um, but I think I'm pretty sure it's open to anyone. If you just talk to the professor, he's um, all about helping you chase after your dreams and like do things that you didn't think you were capable of. But uh -huh. yeah, the whole the whole program has been great for me because all the people that I worked with, they like they believe that I could do it when I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh -huh. um, so it was great to work with them. Otherwise, I wouldn't I wouldn't have this. That's fantastic. So yeah. you can dive into that story of like you applied and they got accepted with your idea. And I committed to the program before I knew what I wanted to write about. Okay. And I talked to the, the professor. It was like a brainstorming kind of call where he kind of felt out what I was interested in and then gave me suggestions for maybe some possible topics. And none of them really resonated with me. And I, I was so close to backing out. I was mm. like, I can't do this. This is too much pressure. <clears throat> um, but I knew that my heart was in that tech against trafficking intersection. And I felt completely unqualified. I didn't really know anything about the space. I wasn't an expert in either anti-trafficking work or technology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I didn't really know what I was doing, but that's where I felt like God was calling me. And so I decided to pursue that. And it was, it's been the most daunting project that I've ever done. Hmm. But it has opened so many doors to conversations of, with technologists. I'm just reaching out to people that I found and then meeting people through them and getting um, to network that way. I've had so many wonderful conversations with those people as I've like interviewed them to find information for the book. And so this has been really a compilation of my journey mm -hmm. and understanding the current status and the landscape of this field. And I'm still trying to figure out, okay, where's my place? Mm -hmm. Like what kind of work am I supposed to be doing? Cause I don't want to just write the book and then- That's it. Yeah. And that's it. What did, uh, what did that look like in terms of time commitment? How much time were you putting into this book each week of this past year? It was kind of like having an extra class on my, in my schedule in terms of time. And it varied. I, I realized that I'm a deadline-driven person. Mm. And I also do my best work when I know that someone's going to see it. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> and so it was really helpful to work with an editor through the process. So I started on the first couple of weeks were just gathering information, doing interviews, um, researching on my own, and then starting to write what they called stories. So like a blog post kind of article length of different things that I was finding as I went along and then from there seeing patterns and structure grouping things into chapters and themes and then structuring the overall manuscript. Mm. So you didn't begin with an outline you actually began with mm -hmm. your raw material of stories and right. found a structure out of that. Yes. Very interesting. So it was it was kind of neat because I it was more organic that way and then it was really you you really have to trust the process. And because I didn't have a plan going into it. It's like just finding things as I, as I went and then it yeah. kind of takes shape. 
Um, Are you generally a planner or no? I, I like having a plan. Okay, so this is different. It's a growth thing for you to, yes. to try this other way of mm-hmm. doing things. Okay. Yeah, so by the end of June, I had a first draft manuscript. And then the summer was kind of two parts. One was doing revision and sending out different chapters to people for feedback and incorporating those. And then also trying to build up momentum hmm. through a pre-order campaign to fund the publication and starting conversations with people. I think that was the scariest part, like pressing post on that the Facebook post to announce that I'm, I'm publishing a book. Oh, wow. Because um, <clears throat> before then, I hadn't, I've been keeping it kind of secret because if I ended up not doing it, it wasn't you know the end of the world. But yeah. then once I announced that I'm doing this, <laughs> it's hard to go back. So Yeah, there's a lot of pressure with mm-hmm. that. I remember the first time I had to ship software, like uh, an app that we built for prayer, Ceaseless Prayer, when mm-hmm. we had submitted to the App Store. And I was like, okay, it's out in the world now. Like people can judge what we did. And like, you know, it's, but it felt great too because it was like a real thing. It was like a huge momentous occasion. Did you um, have the editor guide you through all of that then? So they taught you how to do the pre-order campaign. Did you do it on Kickstarter or what was your, what was the things that you It was on Indiegogo. Indiegogo, okay. So I had uh, an editor work with me through the first draft manuscript Uh and then I switched to a marketing editor who helped me with the um, revisions and promotion and all of that. Wow. And then the head of publishing, so the Creator Institute works really closely with New Degree Press, who's a publisher. And so it was nice to not have to go through all of the more bureaucratic things of, you know, trying to submit Yeah, that kind of support is amazing. Yeah. So they handled the publisher relationship for you. Mm-hmm. You work mainly with the editors to get your copy in place. and Yes. Okay. Well, the head of publishing <laughs> as well, like they're very closely tied. Okay. And so it was really nice having them like they know what they're doing yeah and telling me exactly what i need to do at each step okay and only what i need to know at each step so it's it was a lot of trusting that they knew what they were doing and that eventually it would all turn out is this a program that you had to apply and pay for or is it something where they actually sponsored you i paid for the editor the editor time the editor time but it it wasn't very much Uh Um, and i was really surprised how little they expected of a commitment like coming in. Yeah. Um, it was just like you, you know, you pay the set amount and then that was pretty much it. The whole publication costs themselves were funded by the, the crowdsourcing campaign. And mm-hmm. it, it really was one of those like, you can't pass off this opportunity. It's so almost too good to be mm-hmm. true, but it's yeah. true. Yeah. Just hearing you describe it, I'm mm-hmm. like, there are so many things in life where that would be amazing to have that kind of support. Uh, whether you're you're doing a book or you're doing music or you're creating software or whatever it is, like people who can guide you through that process make it so much more like less ambiguous and scary, mm-hmm. um, especially when they've already done it before and can tell you exactly what you need to do. That is so cool. I hope that they grow and can cover other verticals too. The Creator Institute. You finished writing the book. It is available now, by the way, on mm-hmm. Amazon and Barnes and Nobles online, right? Yes. So people can search mm-hmm. for Data for Dignity. Uh, on Amazon, and it'll show up, and they can buy it mm-hmm. in ebook form or print too. We'll do print. Both. Okay, print mm-hmm. as well. Excellent. If you were to tell pitch your book to the Theotech audience, like what would you say? Why should they Why should they read this? What, what's What's going What are they going to gain from doing this? And what kind of people are you writing it for? My target audience is high school college students who are still trying to figure out what they want to do with their careers. 
especially if they're interested in the tech industry, but they also want to use their skills for good mm -hmm. and to make a social impact. I don't talk a whole lot about my faith in the book itself, but it was the driving you know, factor in the reason why I'm interested in this space at all. You can share with that and right now. Yeah, how does your faith influence this journey in you know, the book? I guess the underlying concern is what do I want to do with my time and my career? Okay. Um, and knowing that I have that kingdom focus of I want to see lives changed, I want to see souls won to Christ for the kingdom and injustice overturned and the gospel spread. And human trafficking isn't the only issue that I think we should be working against, but it was one that God placed on my heart and I think even if you aren't even if you aren't called into the anti-trafficking space you'll still be able to be inspired and learn from the way that these technologists have found ways mm -hmm. um, whether as tech volunteers or changing their entire career or even just supporting organizations or downloading an app or helping to raise awareness I've broken the book down into well, the first couple chapters kind of lay the groundwork for what is human trafficking? Why do we need technologists working in this space? And then what are some considerations that is technologists especially need to have as, as we think about entering into that field and the collaboration that needs to happen between people in the tech space and social workers, yeah. nonprofits. Oftentimes there's this miscommunication of what needs to happen mm -hmm. and what to prioritize. So I cover that, that in my first couple chapters and then I go into um, different kind of angles of combating human trafficking and how technology can be used. Um, kind of like what we talked about where we want to deter the demand um, for those services that are fueled by slavery and then also reaching out to the victims themselves, um, finding ways to economically empower survivors mm -hmm. with technology after they're brought out of those situations and then ways that we can get the entire community involved in the fight against trafficking, even if you know you just have an app or things like that. And then also, of course, tracing the online activity of the trafficking itself and like where that's happening to be able to um, more effectively intervene, especially for law enforcement efforts. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and then the last couple chapters, I kind of address the challenges, both on an organizational level of, okay, you have this idea, how do you actually turn it into something that will make an impact, whether it's a platform or technology or integration or something, and then also personal challenges. Like as a technologist, you have so many opportunities available mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. um, like you can, it's really easy to just live a comfortable life in a you know, pretty large tech corporation, um, don't really have to think about anything else. But then, especially for me, I didn't want to live that kind of life and just live a life that was so focused on myself and my own comfort and happiness. And I wanted to find some kind of work where I can see the impact that it's having on other people. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the concerns of secondary trauma and it's really hard to be dealing with this kind of stuff every day. Mm. I'm not really familiar with that term. Can you describe, explain what secondary trauma is? Yeah, so secondary trauma, trauma or vicarious trauma is when you're working in a space where maybe you you hear stories of people who are in those trafficking situations or hear from survivors, even if you weren't going through that trauma yourself, just hearing about it and being around it and knowing that the work you are doing is impacting um, people in those situations. I've talked to so many, in all of my interviews with the technologists mm. that I had, I would ask them, you know, is it easy when you're looking at the data to forget about what's really behind it? and 
all of them said no like mm. it's really hard to to be working with the code and the the data and the numbers but be super cognizant of the fact that these aren't just numbers like these are people and it's really hard and like a lot of them told me stories of burnout or it's hard to continue in that space um, with that emotional and psychological toll that yeah. a lot of times if you're you know in a pretty comfortable tech job you don't usually have those issues to deal with yeah um, this is an extra thing that can make it an additional barrier mm-hmm. to to wanting to be involved in that kind of work. So those are some considerations that I included. But um, and then I end with some areas where I'm hopeful um, for the future. Like there there are a lot of initiatives and coalitions, conferences going on to bring more attention to this intersection of trying to bring technology into anti-trafficking efforts. And so I'm really hopeful for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, still trying to figure out what I want to do now. That is of course. Published. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one side thought was that did you discover any ways that Christians or churches and others can come alongside the people doing this work that are burning out? Um, I know that it's even harder to do direct service, but to come alongside the people who are volunteering and everything who are facing that secondary trauma, how can they be supported and encouraged so that their gifts can continue to be effective um, instead of just you know maybe doing a stint and then I can't do this anymore? Mm-hmm. It's a good question and something that I haven't considered a whole lot Mm -hmm. of how the church um, or even other Christians can come alongside and and support those people who are doing that work. I think even just understanding that it is hard and being being there if, you know, if they need to share about what's going on. Because a lot of times it's hard because they can't Mm -hmm. Nobody else gets it. Yeah, you can't, um, you know, you can't share that information. But giving them that space to be able to process and, mm-hmm. you know, share. I know for Seattle Against Slavery, um, the people there have talked about how it's it's really encouraging to be in that safe place where everyone in the organization kind of knows what that feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're able to support each other that way. But the church itself, I think even the fact that, you know, you're aware that it can be hard, that can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just being aware of this. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing, Melissa. And I'll let you end, if, if you'd like, with a word for your fellow high schoolers and college students that you said that you were writing this book for, kind of. Right. What would you yeah. want to say to them? Yeah, well, throughout this whole process, the most encouraging thing for me has been being able to have conversations with people, like fellow students or high schoolers as well, of how even the fact that I'm writing this book, how that is impacting them and mm-hmm. inspiring them to reconsider their own you know, their own trajectory and like how they want to be intentional about their careers. And so one thing I would say is, first of all, pray about where God is calling you. And it doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. It can be mm-hmm. like for me, this was began as just like one year commitment and pray about what area God is calling you to and know that no matter what your day job looks like or what specific skills you have, there are, there are always ways that you can use those, the time, the skills, the resources that you have, and even just the conversations that you have um, to be able to raise awareness and inspire change and live out the gospel mm-hmm. um, in big and small ways. And oftentimes you won't see the impact of what you're doing, but you can trust that God will open those doors and use you know the words you say and the things you do to have a greater impact in the long run. Mm-hmm. Walking by faith. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you, Melissa. So once again, if you'd like to check out her book, it's Data for Dignity, 
It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And also, if you would like to support Theotech in sharing more stories like this of people using their gifts for God's kingdom and how God is using technology to advance the gospel all around the world, uh, I invite you to check out our Patreon and search for Theotech there. You can find us and support the podcast. And with that, thank you, and until next time. Thank you.